big technology companies have so much going on at any given time that a journalist can tell any type of story they want to about it. Depending on what angle you observe the company from, you can write a story depicting that company as good, evil, growing, or about to crash. The truth only becomes apparent to outsiders with time. Amazon's culture and business strategy were detailed in The Everything Store, a 2013 book by Brad Stone. I read The Everything Store before working at Amazon, and then I read it a second time after working at Amazon. The book is an accurate and balanced depiction of Amazon's ethos. Brad's new book, The Upstarts, documents the rise of Uber and Airbnb, two companies with a similar controversial valence to Amazon. It was a pleasure to speak to Brad because I admire his engrossing storytelling as an author and his strategic analysis as a business journalist. After discussing business and technology with him, we explored journalism. Brad is a senior executive editor at Bloomberg, and it was a real treat to talk to him. Brad Stone is the author of The Upstarts and The Everything Store. Brad, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. I worked as an engineer for Amazon for eight months, and I read your book, The Everything Store, which is about Amazon before I started. I left Amazon 19 months ago, and then I read your book again last month. And when I compare my perception of the book before and after I worked at Amazon, I'm struck by how well you captured the company. When you look back on that book, are there any specific areas of Amazon or Jeff Bezos that are still a mystery to you? Well, I mean, I uh, first of all, thank you for the for the double read. Um, you know, the main thing is I feel like it is in some ways a different company. I mean, when that book originally came out at the end of 2013, I mean, the market cap is I think three times what it was back then. And they've, they've grown in two significant areas, one into artificial intelligence with Alexa and then two into the, into the really into physical retail, which is so surprising. Um, you know, sprouting not just these bookstores all over the country, but now a whole new set of grocery stores to try to stimulate their Amazon Fresh business. None of that's particularly surprising. I mean, you know, Amazon, as you maybe even experienced, thrives on internal competition. So, you know, if you have a healthy e-commerce business, the thing to do is to start a whole other division of physical retail to go compete with them for the best way to serve customers. I guess, you know, it, it is amazing to me that uh, a company that was fundamentally like an online retail company and then even a cloud services company, they keep expanding in these other along these other dimensions. So, you know, how Amazon competes for and retains uh, artificial in, uh, talent in AI when they're going against Google and Microsoft and these other giants is remarkable. And how do you think they do that? Because Google and Facebook offer perks and perks and perks and if you work at amazon you get lord of the flies basically so how do they retain so many people what is their differentiating strength from the outside looking at well i mean as your as your eighth month tenure you know shows that they don't retain everyone right there's a there's high turnover um but you know that senior leadership team is remarkably um consistent i you know they've got they've got a couple things they've got that that equity you know that has been going up in value and that's of course a lure but then they have the secret weapon which is jeff i mean people want to work with him and he you know he 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 runs a large organization but he gets very involved in in things that excite him and over the years that has been kindle and um you know back in the day was like the new jewelry category and now it's very very clearly you can see where he is making his impact is in you know robotics and drones and and ai and alexa and so i guess if you're an ai researcher and and you have jeff bezos himself making the hard sell you know he's very involved in these divisions I would say, you know, Larry Page at, at Alphabet is maybe more of a remote presence across the company. But, you know, you go and you work in the Alexa division at Amazon, I would imagine you're spending a fair amount of time with one of the smartest people in the world. And that's that's a draw. When you think about it from a business management perspective, having studied a lot of different companies, what do you think are the pros and cons of those two approaches, the, the uh, sort of the great leader approach where you are relying on the presence of the great leader versus the more institutionalized uh, sensibilities that a place like Google might have. 
I mean, I, I, it feels like Amazon does both, right? They have, you know, they have a set of values and a culture that does kind of uh, m- incentivize ground up innovation. But then at the same time, you've got, you know, the innovator in chief who kind of comes in and makes his presence felt sometimes in uncomfortable ways. So, um, I, you know, you can't, you can't argue with the results at Amazon. You know, as a retail business that's sp- that spawned an enterprise computing arm, and and now it has spawned a you know an AI division and a robotics division, and like they they come up with a lot of great stuff, even though the culture uh, gets criticized for being hard driving and kind of relentless. So, um, but look, I mean, you know, the Google approach works well. I mean. I, Apple's a good example of a company that really did have a top-down, fearless leader culture. And, of course, after Steve Jobs died, had to evolve. Um, you know, you can criticize them for maybe not coming up with a strong second act after the iPhone. But, like, the company's financial performance has been pretty stellar. Um, and, obviously, this, the iPhone, you know, is is more popular than ever. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's, like, lots of different models. Um, uh, and, you know, and the tech companies all kind of embody different flavors. One thing I noticed at Amazon, and I certainly saw this reinforced reading your book the the two times I read it, was long-term thinking basically as a religion within Amazon. Uh, do you think that's an overstatement? And do you think that there are, are there other companies that have this ability to think long-term to the degree that Amazon has been able to? I would say that everybody wants to do it. And everyone has the religion to some degree. I mean, you know, you and, and it, you could say it started with Amazon, but really it was like Warren Buffett before him. And um, the mentality is is uh, is around and popular, um, but you kind of need license to do it. You need like permission to do it from your investors, really. And Bezos was just very smart very early on in kind of signaling that this was going to be the approach that he wanted to take in that first shareholder letter. And anyone who wasn't interested could just go away, you know, could get off the bus. And so, you know, Amazon, you see them missing quarters, you know, you see, um, you, you see invest, you know, the stock will dip after an earnings report. Um, there's, there is some volatility, uh, and, and then people come back, you know, and, 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 and the big shareholders are re- all re- relatively stable. And it's because they kind of understand. Now, you have to be able to do that, right? Like, um, you know, if you're Walmart right now getting buffed or, or let's say Verizon, you know, getting buffeted by, uh, you know, your, you know, shifts in investor sentiment around your stock price. If, you know, if the CEO is just to say, well, we have a long term, you know, vision, we're going to we're, we're building things for the next five years. Investors probably aren't gonna <laughs> gonna go along with that, you know. They that's not who their investor class is, and they want, you know, they they're um, they want to see kind of gradual progress. And so you have these CEOs that end up managing quarter to quarter. But you know, Jeff is in this unique category of being kind of the founder operator. I would say Mark Zuckerberg is there, Larry Page is there, and they're just given more leeway, you know, more room to run. So they can say they're long-term oriented. They can do it. Jeff probably spends only a few hours with investors all year, very limited, and you know, and he really doesn't care and doesn't have to care. He's a huge shareholder in the company too. So there's a lot of different elements that allow him to not only have the religion but to implement it. The boomerang investors f- that leave Amazon and then they come back to it, that seems to mirror the employee base. You have all these employees where you look at their resume, it's like three years at Amazon and then like two years elsewhere and then another eight years at Amazon. Uh, Jeff, are you foreshadowing your next career move? I'm absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, <laughs> I will never be, never be back at Amazon. But... Uh, one, you know, my criticisms of Amazon are so different than ones I read. So, uh, I thought your book was very, uh, impartial and I think that's the word to use, but, uh, this notorious piece that came out of the New York times inside Amazon wrestling big ideas in a bruising workplace. This was the super famous Amazon article out of the New York times by David Streitfeld and, uh, a co-author of his, uh, did you feel that this article was disjoint with the material in your book, or did you feel it was a compliment? Mm, good question. Um, no, I mean, I felt like I had flagged some other things, but maybe been a little less uh, fra- fra- framed it in a little bit, l- little bit less of a uh, 
adversarial way. Um, and not to say that the Times didn't hedge uh, a bit as well in that piece. But, you know, you have to sort of start by acknowledging that, one, it's an achievement culture, right? The company is, has uh, done amazing things and does succeed in its primary goal, which is to serve customers. And, um, and two, that, like, you can't necessarily make broad judgments based on anecdotes. You can find people at every company that have had hard experiences. I'm sure there are employees of Bloomberg that have cried at their desks. Um, and yet, you know, to make kind of sweeping generalizations about them, I think, you know, the anecdotes can be interesting and they can tell you something about the overall character of a company. But like for every person who has been unhappy at Amazon, you could probably find someone who, you know, has had a very fulfilling career there. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think I raised some of the same issues about how hard driving that culture can be. Um, but maybe I was a little more careful. And the other thing is, is that it's such a large company now. There are so many, there are so many different kinds of experiences. Like I think culture at AWS is a lot different than culture in retail. Um, culture in a, in an area where Jeff has a particular interest, Jeff Bezos is probably, you know, life there is a lot more uncomfortable than if you're, uh, in one of the other parts of the business that he, you know, maybe sees once a year. And so, um, you know, it's, it's really not, I don't know what you think about this, but it, it never felt to me as I was looking at it that it was a one size fits all culture. Things that are, are, are sort of common traits across the organization, um, but lots of different kinds of experiences. I think the things that are present across the organization, broadly speaking, are those management principles. I don't know how much time you spent looking at those and scrutinizing them, but those were fundamental to how Amazon works, these management principles. And I've ended up asking a lot of other companies, you know, when I do interviews like these, like, so do you have these management principles? And, you know, before you work at a tech company or maybe before you study them, you think these things are like anodyne, bland, useless phrases. Well, they are at a lot of companies, but but not at Amazon. Not at Amazon. Yeah. And some of those, like, disagree and commit are specifically tuned to kind of create a sense of discomfort in the organization. Like Jeff, you know, never wanted the company to turn into a country club where people just got comfortable and coasted. And he also thought that there's like this human inclination to just get along with people. And that probably sounds good, right? We should all uh, be singing in harmony. But he, he, you know, he believed that that stood in the way of like finding out the truth. And so this thing that's in one of those principles, social cohesion, you know, he feels like can be harmful to a company that you should like, you know, meetings should be combative, you know, there should be disagreement, you should be able to disagree with your boss. Um, and so some of these things that he built into the company are the things that maybe uh, the press points to as as being as making the place uh, an uncomfortable one to work. Speaking of the press, the Everything Store, your book, seemed like such a balanced take. And you hear Bezos say things like, quote, unquote, I think he said, quote, we should be scrutinized. Uh, I think he said that, I, I don't remember what the interview was, but he was talking about, you know, uh, I think Trump, like Trump's response to the press. But, and, and obviously he loves journalism because he wouldn't have bought the Washington Post otherwise. But Amazon has this allergy to journalists or just doesn't deal with journalists. Is there some kind of disconnect there? <laughs> I think there's a nice little paradox because he, you know, he, he is the owner of the Post, which has been very aggressive in its coverage um, of, uh, of President Trump and, you know, ad- very admirable, I think, in the way it's, it covered the campaign and the administration. And yeah, and then Amazon is so... Um, you know, is so difficult to cover, uh, provides so little access and transparency, is a com- extremely competitive organization in very competitive markets. And so really kind of counts its perspective on things and its future plans as company secrets. When Jeff, you know, Jeff prefers to kind of talk for the company almost alone. I mean, Andy Jassy gets some attention and some other executives you'll hear from. But really, you know, Basically, Jeff is the is the uh, the face of the company, and yet when he does talk, it's sort of unsatisfying. And you know, he can repeat the same thing again and again <laughs> over the years. <laughs> and oh, uh, it's a Jeffism, uh, right? A Jeffism. No, that's an obfuscation. Yeah, and yeah, and he says, "Well, we're just misunderstood." <laughs> but you know, it's not like he's done a great job of helping people understand. I don't think he wants 
journalists to understand the company. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a that's a great paradox. Um, you know, m- you know, you could say that the the president has an obligation to the people to be transparent, whereas the company really doesn't. If anything, it has an obligation to its shareholders to create value, and sometimes that is done just by being very discreet. And as with all things, Amazon's very good at that. Your book was basically chronicling Amazon, but I feel like if you would have had the chance to chronicle Bezos more, you would have. My sense is that this guy is infinitely cagey. Certain, like if you compare him to like Elon Musk. I mean, Elon Musk in that Ashley Vance book. You, you read? Did you read that book? Well, he Ashley works with me. And, oh, okay, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so you, you at least talk to him. But uh, I mean. Musk was fairly open with that book, or as far as we know, he was fairly open. I think we know he's at the level of caginess of Bezos also, but he was very open with his biography, although there were certain parts of it that were extremely shadowy. But Bezos is kind of the same, like, actually probably to a much higher degree, the degree of shadowiness that like, or I don't know. Were you exposed discretion, to discretion? I would say discretion. He, he, you know, right. he. I don't want to say. I don't want to put and a negative spin on discipline. it. And discipline. It's totally understood. You know, and discipline. I, yes. I just think like. Um, you know, Jeff is uh, he's he's still writing the story of his life and right. he's looking forward and he's got his goal on the next product and the next service. And, um, you know, and, and probably did, doesn't see much value in revisiting the past. Right. Um, but now he did like he did talk to me. He let me talk to his his uh, his colleagues, a member of members of his family, but they were all fairly disciplined, and so it was like years of chiseling out stories and truth from other people, often those who had left Amazon. Um, but but like that book is, I feel like a, a Jeff biography as well, and there were fascinating parts of his early life that I discovered, and um, you know, and 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 some of his side interests, like in space, um, that were just so fascinating to me. But you know, the funny thing is like. The biography of the company and the biography of the man are in some ways the same thing, right? The company is his life, life's work, and um, its identity is really his identity. Okay, let's get into Uber. So your newest book is The Upstarts. It's about Uber and Airbnb. You published this book right before there were several controversies that erupted out of Uber. These were stories about Uber's culture being cutthroat and sexist stories about its self-driving technology that acquired through auto eventually being stolen uh, by Google, which uh, there was an article this morning that sort of shed a little more light on that stolen, maybe an overuse of the word steal, or we'll get into that. Uh, But given what you learned about the company from writing your book, uh, and then the volume of information that came out right after that, were you surprised by that knowledge no i mean i um i think that a lot of it is in the book the fact that this is a company that grew from 500 employees to 11,000 in the span of two years uh, you know they did that without the without uh creating the guardrails of a professional hr organization you know they were focused very much on just building the team uh with a sort of you know god-given mission they felt that they were improving transportation in a lot of cities and, you know, and, and like in the book, you know, I, I do account, I do chronicle some of the cultural things that they did where they would bring employees, uh, to parties in Las Vegas or Miami. And, and, you know, there were certain, uh, there were some people that felt uncomfortable by that. Certainly, you know, if you add alcohol to the mix, these are not, uh, situations that lend themselves to very professional, uh, you know, interactions, but it's also a startup, you know, where people were living and fighting and, 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 and working together every single day. And I think, you know, I think they kind of got lost in, in what the need, the needs were when you, you know, when you build a professional organization at scale. So, um, you know, like I can't, we just, I just said, vis-a-vis Amazon that we can't really judge a company by its worst anecdotes. And I think like the, the sexual harassment allegation, while awful, what, what that person experienced, it's like, you know, there are women in leadership positions at Uber. And, um, and I don't think it's a universal experience, uh, but clearly it showed and, and Uber owned up to some serious deficiencies in the way they had built their HR organization. So that's one piece. You know, the, I think the second piece is Travis fighting with the, the driver, which we published here at Bloomberg. And, you know, and he, you know, that, that's just like, what, what is he doing there? Uh, you know, when you sort of assume that everyone's got a dash cam these days, um, he, 
you know, and, and the drivers are his customers. Uh, you could that, never imagine Jeff Bezos. Doing no, that. that's a lack of discipline right there. And, and so, you know, he, the Uber is now in the mode of falling on their swords and he went and said he was going to go hire a COO, which was a, which is a story we're obviously covering, uh, pretty closely. Then the third piece is the Google Uber, uh, um, legal battle over the driverless car technology. And on that one, you know, Business Week has a cover story out about uh, the the roots of that. And, you know, I would say, you know, one thing is that we've heard one part of the story, right? Google has filed a claim and, you know, Uber will at some point file a counterclaim. And the, the fact pattern that Google presented looks bad uh, for Uber. I mean, it's, it sounds like, you know, that Anthony Lewandowski, who left Google and went to Uber, um, you know, brought along some technology. But it's also true, as the cover story in Business Week shows, that Lewandowski was kind of LIDAR at Google. Yeah. And some of it, and it was sort of hazy because right. he had a lot of startups on the side, what was his and what was the company's. Right. Yeah. So what you're talking about, uh, Anthony Lewandowski is a genius. This guy is not just a thief of information. He's been working intensely on self-driving technology for like a decade. I mean, in some ways, he's the father of the industry. Right. The father of the industry. Like, you have Sebastian Thrun, who is more of an academic character, who uh, Lewandowski studied under, basically. And then for the last 10 years, Lewandowski has been, like, sort of had one foot in Google, one foot in whatever business he's been working on. And he's just, like, trying to get self-driving to market, almost in an effect. I mean, this is why he's sort of a nice spiritual cohort to uh, to um, Travis Kalanick, certainly not a COO, but uh, he's a, a cohort. And uh, and it makes a lot of sense that you know such an executor would want to go to Uber. Uh, of course, the... Okay, but if we talk about the auto case, is the way that auto was structured where... Uh, it was, he sort of talked to Travis some, before, I think, before he left Google, and then Auto was started, and it was acquired. Is that a smoking gun, or does Auto just look like a thing that he started, and he was trying to get some optionality, trying to get his valuation up? Right. Um, and right. So what we're talking about is the timeline when Anthony Lewandowski left Google, started a self-driving truck company, Auto, and then Uber bought it. And as as we reported uh, in the in the story. Yeah, the, t- the timeline is hazy, and, and Anthony may have been visiting Uber, Uber before he really started auto. And, um, and maybe even Travis and Anthony had decided that Uber was going to buy auto, uh, perhaps even before or right after Anthony left Google. So let me just unpack that and say sort of simply, I think there are two possible scenarios. Okay. And, we, and we'll need to find a little bit more about which is the right one. To me, it seems more likely that this was a way for Uber really to just financially reward, uh, Anthony on par with what you know, what with his enormous skill set and what driverless car researchers and leaders in the field could command. I mean, you know, this is this is a, a field where lots of companies are interested and he's a pioneer. And I think, you know, the timeline shows that that perhaps um, you know, what they were doing is this is like, you know, give it, giving him a real kind of payout to go and join another company as opposed to just starting something himself. Now, the other possibility, the more darker scenario is that this was a little bit of a conspiracy to go and, and, uh, and kind of cleanse this IP. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to me, that's a little bit more of a stretch. That's right. certainly, I think, what Google's asserting. But it's more likely that if there's a sort of quiet conspiracy, it's, you know, instead of coming to Uber and getting some options that may or may not be worth anything, we want to make this worth your while. We want you to come work for Uber. Why don't you start this company and we'll buy it? And, you know, this is going to be an, an enormously lucrative transaction for you. Tom, you do, are you buying that? I think it's only time will tell. Like, both of the scenarios you presented are plausible. Uh, I think, you know, the more I think about it, like the conspiracy to start auto with the knowledge that it would get acquired to cleanse the IP, I don't think Uber and Lewandowski would be that sloppy, but I think it is, uh, I don't know, or maybe maybe they are, and they were just like, well, Google will never go after us, but I don't know. It's, it's all hearsay. Well, two things. One, Lewandowski... 
was saying all along, asserting in interviews that the quote IP was clean. So he knew that the potential oh. charge was out there. Like oh. he has said in in interviews, even last year, oh, okay. that this is all my stuff and has nothing to do with Google. So he he knew that, that they were susceptible to that accusation. Uh, and then you know, number two, I mean, let's put this in perspective: uh, that Google right now is at the risk of being uh, in the in the in the in the phrase of a quote from the Business Week story seen as the Xerox Park of driverless cars, <laughs> right? right? Yes. The, the, the organization that First really mover yeah, initiated all this interest, but then has failed to capitalize on it. And so I think they're operating right now uh, from a position of weakness. And they see a lot of the momentum shifting not only to Uber, but to Tesla and, and, and Baidu, uh, which is working on this as well. And, uh, you know, there's probably a little bit of um, animosity there that, you know, they have suffered from a lot of defections, a lot of the energy in self-driving cars moving elsewhere. Um, you know, so I think that plays into it as well. I thought it was interesting that Lewandowski left Google because of the, quote, slow pace of innovation, and he was uniquely enticed to join Uber. And it's easy for people to criticize Uber for the fast and risky culture, but this was actually something that attracted Lewandowski, although maybe this uh, fast and riskiness will undermine that too. But I don't know, interesting trade-off there. Um, so one thing I see when I'm looking at these different companies like Uber and Amazon and and Facebook and Google is that the company culture is informed by the marginal profits of the company. So if you look at Facebook and Google, the company culture is luxurious because the profit margins are so high. You sell bits on the internet, you control the advertising industry, it's a really good place to be, you make tons and tons of money so you can have a luxurious culture. At Amazon, uh, you know, I think if you build a retail business off of super low margins, the only way to compel people to stay there for a long time and to have vision to be motivated is to have this long-term vision where you're like, okay, yeah, the stock price is going to be, is just going to go up and up and up and up and up. Um, it's a low margin business though. How do the profit margins of Uber shape its company culture? Because this also seems like a business like Amazon where it's ultimately low margin commodity business differentiating on technology or network effects. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think in in a lot of ways Amazon is the model for Uber. And it's not just low profit margins, it's the fact that what they do is essentially a commodity. You know, Amazon never really had a big advantage. Anyone could sell books, anybody could sell toys. Um you were really only, you know, your your relationship with your customer uh, was only as good as like the last experience they had with you. You know, if you, if you met their, your promises and fulfilled their expectations and they would come to you again. And there's a little bit of stickiness over the fact that you've got their credit card information and they're familiar with your site, but it's not that the switching costs aren't that high. So it's two things. It's the fact that, uh, you know, you don't have a big advantage and the, and the profit margin is low. And so Amazon created a culture, you know, tuned to moving fast and constantly expanding the, the breadth of offerings and then doubling down on it, doubling down on it, on, on, you know, the, the lock-in. Like Prime is all designed around lock-in, particularly for a phase in the company history where, when they didn't have the sales tax advantage. So they were losing a little bit of the pricing advantage that they had. And so Prime, you know, kind of obfuscates the price of things and, um, you know, just creates like this obligation to shop at Amazon. You know, Uber, yeah, I mean, it's funny, I you know, they're a private companies, so we don't quite know what the profit margins are. Like Amazon, you know, it generates a lot of cash. They push, they funnel that uh, free cash flow back into expanding the business into new markets. We've reported that they're unprofitable. But I think, you know, if you just look, if you take San Francisco or London, it's a profitable com company. Like, we don't yet know uh, how, how big the margins are. Um, but, you know, but, but again, like Lyft, uh, or Addison Lee in London, like these are, you know, these are, are options that are, are really as good. Yeah. Um, the, 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 there's a little stickiness around putting the app on there, but like there really isn't a technology advantage. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think, um, the, the culture then becomes similar at like, uh, you know, high volume, low margin, inventing new things, trying in, in constant search of, of creating lock-in. What are the opportunities for a moat at Uber? Um, well, it's funny. I think 
they have constantly talked about ways to use technology to improve the customer experience that I don't really see much of a difference yet. Um, you know, developing their own maps so they could make the driving experience easier for drivers or the pickup experience easier for passengers. You know, but Lyft is doing a very good job innovating along those lines as well. And it's really not clear that Uber Maps will deliver that much greater value than Google Maps. I mean, they say, you know, that Google Maps aren't really made for drivers and and passengers meeting each other on the side of the road. And so they can develop something differently. And they have been investing a lot of money in that. Um, if that's a mode, it's probably a relatively shallow one. What else can we think of? The logistics of the, network well, idea? Well, here's another the one. I was going to go pool, like that can scale deliver a moat. Because when you've got more drivers and more riders, you can do things on top of your network. Uh, logistics and food delivery are one, but also carpooling and commuting together is, is another. But the thing is, is like, you know, in a lot of markets, the Lyfts or Ola in India have, are now big enough, even if they're the second player, to deliver some of those same add on services. Um, you know, it's interesting, Uber Food, um, eat, they call it Uber Eats, was always talked about as like another thing you could do with the network. But in a lot of cities, they're using different kinds of drivers because you can't put cars on the road with food. You'd have nowhere to park. So you've got motorbikes or bicycles in a lot of cities. So um, I don't know. You know, I, I, I think, um, you know, I think I think it's one of the challenges of their business that, um, you know, that they haven't really created a differentiator now capital has been the differentiator like they have raised so much money uh that you know it's and then they go and subsidize the rides and and in a way they sort of punish the second to the 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 you know the competition because um you know they'll they'll lose money more painfully if they go and match the prices but lyft has done a great job differentiating on brand you know and a lot of a lot of people maybe it's more here in the tech bubble, but a lot of people see them as the kinder, friendlier, gentler alternative, even though they're doing the exact same things. As a consumer of the services, do you think that's accurate or is that just branding? Because I'll say the Uber drivers I have seem pretty nice. I think it's 90% branding. I mean, if anything, you know, Lyft was more aggressive, as I talk about in the book. Lyft was more aggressive in propagating the legally ambiguous idea of ride sharing than Uber was at the beginning. Uh, and then Uber kind of took, took it and ran with it. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, John Zimmer and Logan Green, the, the founders of Lyft, would never be caught yelling at a driver you know not only are they uh do they have kind of different personalities but i actually think that they you know every business needs some idealism and and the idealism around ride sharing is all around eliminating traffic and taking cars off the road and like they come to that idealism a little more organically like logan green was working on this stuff in you know 15 years ago in santa santa Mon uh in uh, santa barbara when he was in college and yeah travis kalanick at uber kind of adopted some of the rhetoric when he i think when he heard lyft talking about it um and so i think you know being ruthless but also being uh, idealistic is like the sweet spot. Jeff Bezos does it very well, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think like the idealism of Uber uh, has always seemed a little more superficial than the idealism of Lyft. Do you think it's a binary outcome where either Uber finds a moat, whether it's self driving cars or a logistics network or something else, flying cars? Uh, is it either they find a moat and they succeed? Or they fall completely on their face and go bankrupt, or is there a middle ground? I think there's a middle ground. I think I think that we're often maybe in the press mistaking Lyft's success for Uber's failure. The same in India and China. And the fact is, is that this is an exploding market that has increased opportunity for drivers everywhere uh, dramatically. You know, this was like a uh, you know a supply that was capped by regulation and served customers very poorly the, the taxi industry and you've you know these companies have sort of unleashed supply um, I know you know mo mo and then increased demand and motivated a lot of people to uh, abandon leave their cars at home uh, carpool to work and I don't even know that we've reached the upper limit of what these companies can do in a lot of cities um, 
And so, yeah, I think there's there's room for multiple players. You know, there's not just one taxi company yeah. in in every town. Now, the question is, I think, is is more in the you know in the middle. Like, what does it mean for Uber's valuation? And that's a whole other discussion. But if this is a seventy billion dollar company, did those investors were they betting on a monopoly? Um, I, I I think it'll be a fairly large business. And you know, if they go public and the valuation declines, it might be sort of framed temporarily as a disaster. And some of the late stage investors that didn't get protections might get a, take a little bit of a haircut. Yeah. Um, and, and that valuation is pretty high, right? Yeah, uh, and so, um, you know, the, the, I guess the, the question is, is when we get into driverless cars in five or 10 years, does that become a winner-take-all scenario if you've got one network that has managed to get the technology right? And that's why we're seeing Uber invest in it so heavily, because they have to be part of that conversation. Airbnb seems like a company that thinks long term uh that is another company that is framed in your book the upstarts um just to get right into it the big bet that airbnb is placing right now is on quote experiences uh do you have a picture in your head for how this fits into a big long term play cuz like you look at airbnb and you're like okay wow they're doing this incredible thing with uh, space and you could imagine them going into all kinds of things like real estate or you know data on real estate uh, but they go into experiences like do you do you have a picture for how that fits into the long term yeah I mean the, the the mission of the company is to create a more authentic travel experience for people they, they'll say you belong anywhere and it is true I think that travel for a lot of people is staying in a hotel that could be anywhere and going and visiting the tourist uh, ex, you know the tourist traps of a particular city and so you know I, I like the idea of experiences to be able to go and like have a marketplace of like really authentic legitimate fun uh, highly rated things to do in a place that make you feel like you've actually visited there and interacted with the people as opposed to just sitting at the top of a double-decker bus looking at the sites. I mean, maybe you want to do a little bit of both, but... um, And, and, you know, and there's also a part of the vision of trips that, uh, you know, maybe creates tourist destinations out of cities that you maybe otherwise wouldn't visit. Like, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I cannot imagine that it's very high on anybody's travel list. But, you know, lots of cool history and... You know, immigrants to, to Ohio, like, you know, lot, amazing neighborhoods and history and places to eat. And so, you know, you might not find that in a guidebook. Um, and so, um, you know, can you like create a marketplace of things to do in a place like Detroit or Cleveland that makes those interesting places to visit? And so, you know, it's also, I think uh, they're, they're releasing it at an interesting time. Like, you know, the home sharing category might be slowing down a little bit. A lot of cities have placed regulatory limits on how uh, how many nights somebody can share their home. In in places like San Francisco, the city's gotten very strict about um, people rent, uh, listing on Airbnb more than one property at a time. You know, they don't want illegal hoteliers going and like having a network of a dozen places and taking those places off the housing market. And Airbnb over the years has had to be a little bit of a better <laughs> strict enforcer of these laws early on it sort of said well who are we to be policemen and now they've got to you know put up or shut up so to speak and so trips i think is an expansion of their platform uh at a a time when maybe the opportunity their core business is slowing down a little Ah, bit okay and it probably makes more sense to lever up into something in the travel industry where it's a little safer uh a little weaker weaker competition less complex business than getting into something like real estate or uh, commercial. Well, they might do that, too. They might do it eventually. Yeah. yeah. Um, The thing is, and it is like a big challenge, they need to create, you know, well, I would say their their the the original business was like a global marketplace. Yeah. Um, you had visitors traveling and hosts and cities, and the thing kind of went by itself. This is a much larger challenge. Like they've got double sided marketplaces that they have to create in every city, you know, and in in hundreds of cities around the world, like yeah. stimulating 
tourist uh, tour operators and restaurant tours and you know gallery owners to go and like list experiences on their platform um and then they've got to get a customer set who is fairly acclimated to using airbnb in one way to expand their conception of the company so it's interesting it's really ambitious and and ag- once again they turn to amazon as a model it's so funny how uh, it's apple and not uh, it's Amazon, not Apple. Bezos, not Jobs, that has become kind of the the um, canonical entrepreneur and tech company of, of our time. And Airbnb says this is akin to Amazon going from books to everything. One of my favorite stories that you shed light on in this uh, book is the Samwer brothers story. These are these German brothers that have been making a lot of money from standing up businesses that are clones of other businesses. I think their first couple were they cloned eBay in a German market or European market. Then they cloned, uh, what was it, Groupon. They've cloned everybody. They cloned everybody, right. They did not successfully clone Airbnb. The narrative is that they failed to successfully copy it because it was a community and they don't understand that you can't copy community. They don't understand community. Do you have a more general thesis about what are the kinds of internet businesses that can be copied and which ones can't? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like the this idea of a yeah, they didn't get the community right was a little bit of it's a little bit of spin. Um because Airbnb does like to, you know, call attention to its community. <laughs> um but, you know, but we we can say that and acknowledge that some of that community are folks that, you know, have are just pure commercial operators and don't really want to be part of any community, but you know, I think also like the the character of their business um, probably, um, you know, probably hurt the Samwers. So Airbnb, as I just said, is like a global network. And you fundamentally, on one side of the network, have people that are crossing borders and traveling. And, you know, Airbnb started with a position of strength in the U.S. and U.S. travelers, you know, when they go to when they go to Europe, they were just going to open the Airbnb app. So already Airbnb had a fairly large advantage. Um, you know, I, I also think like, you know, we talk about the balance between idealism and ruthlessness, you know, that the Sam were just were, were really like lopsided on the, on the side of ruthlessness. <laughs> like there wasn't really enough of a mission there about what they were trying to accomplish, why people should buy into it. And uh, from you an know, employee. Point yeah, of view. from an employee point of view. And, you know, I paint this picture in the book of like their army of ants, you know, young people just soldiering away in these super hot warehouses over their computers, basically like with Airbnb open on one browser screen and the Samwers website and another kind of copying features. And, um, you know, it's a bad way to run a business. And I think Silicon Valley for a long time allowed itself to be held hostage by this approach. And, you know, and then, and it, it maybe it wasn't really as much the wisdom of Airbnb, although I think that they handled it very well, but they could look at how badly the Groupon integration was going with the company that Groupon had acquired from the Samwers or, ha- you know, and say, you know, this model hasn't really worked all that well. Right. It hasn't served these companies well to just go acquire their clone and use that as an international uh, vehicle for international expansion. So it's almost like Silicon Valley had developed some scar tissue around this approach and Airbnb benefited from it. Now, by the way, I think that the difference between average Silicon Valley company or you take like Google and Samware Brothers running a hot warehouse of developers that are cloning a website, I don't think that diff- the difference there is as big as it seems because basically Google says, okay, let's pay this big fixed cost of uh, air conditioning, beanbag chairs, uh, catered food, like it's ultimately all that stuff is a fixed cost and then they get the best engineers in the world and they get to make huge margins off of them um but and we, we don't need to go into that but um uh i, I want to talk talk about journalism with you a bit because uh you know i'm i've kind of gotten into the journalism business since uh since kind of leaving engineering um there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in journalism right now and one thing i notice is that they're Historically, there's been kind of a partitioning of journalists into silos, whether we're talking about the publication that they work for or the type of material that they write about. But I look at a journalist like you or Kara Swisher or Ezra Klein, and there seems to be a multifaceted uh, ability to report on stuff where... 
you know, like it doesn't matter. Like if you were reporting on politics, I would read your stuff. If Kara Swisher is reporting on politics, I read her stuff. And if you're reporting on tech, then I'll read that. Is this a new thing? Like, are we seeing the rise of a polyglot personality of journalist? Well, thank you for including me in that very uh, esteemed group. Um, it is true that at one point we had more narrowly defined lanes. You know, you were a magazine writer or you were a newspaper writer. And I think it's led by the interest of the, of the, of the reader, the subscriber, um, and the fact that like we're all sort of reinventing ourselves as digital media swarms or subsumes analog media and we're trying to figure out new ways to create things. Like I don't consider myself to be a natural podcaster or radio person, but I have a podcast. You know, we do a decrypted podcast at Bloomberg. You know, I, I was always uncomfortable with the idea of being on TV, but like you got to do it now. And so I go and do it and, um, it's yeah. I mean, I think I think it's like the media, the me, you know the mediums have converged, and we're we're trying to like, you know, we're trying to uh, entice our readers at a time where like there's an explosion of competition for their time and attention. You know, it's like we're all now. You know, the landscape has become our Twitter and Facebook feeds, and so we're all sort of waving our arms furiously, saying, "Hey, pay a little bit of attention to me right now," and you know. That's not going to be a 3,000-word story often. Sometimes it might be, you know, but sometimes it's a little video clip or a little, you know, or an audio podcast for somebody's drive. You're trying to, like, grab people when you can grab them. So it's, if anything, like, I mean, folks like Kara Swisher and, and Ezra Klein have done that re with remarkable sort of fluidity. And it's hard. It's exhausting, you know. It's like it takes a certain kind of talent, I think, to go and, like, you know, Ac you know, do the acrobatics required to be fluent in all these different mediums. I really do find it to be completely exhausting. Um, but it's like the game that we li that, that we're playing now. I did ask you this before the, the show, though. You're having fun, though, right? Yeah, it is fun. It is. It, it's definitely fun. Like the idea that we get to experiment now and be sort of media innovators is right. is a lot of fun. Um, it's a treadmill, though. It never stops. It ne the second. So when I started at Newsweek magazine back in the day, and you did a story and you got it into the magazine, which was a, which was difficult because there was a lot of competition. You took a victory lap. <laughs> there was like a week where you just you didn't pitch anything. You just like basked in the glow. And now, you know, the, the, the glow expires in about uh, 20 minutes. Yeah. And it's like, what's next? Well, the treadmill is always there to it's run. It's always though. there. The treadmill is always there. So um, I think actually you need to be careful about it. And I kind of counsel other journalists. This like burnout-wise. Burnout-wise and mental health-wise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is something about um, this attention and the, the ease with which we will now get feedback or we will know how many people read our stuff that, you know, it's just like back in the day you really didn't know, you know, you were sort of spitting into the rain and there was some vague sense that, you know, your magazine was delivered to the doorstep of the power brokers and that was enough. And like, of course, the world read, read, read everything. And now you really don't, you, you know, pretty now specifically. You're a power broker. Well, you know, pretty specifically who is or who isn't reading that, that thing. That's, and so the constant clawing for attention, I think, can be is, uh, is a little, it's a little destructive. Well, it doesn't have to be, right? It's, it's destructive if you let it be. It's destructive if you let it cater to your id. I would or, say that there, yeah. Well, I mean, ego. yeah. There's there are certain journalists that, that perhaps have, uh, you know, under under the under that limelight have allowed it to kind of change their sensibilities, right. and they you know, and they've they almost abandoned their role as journalists and become kind of professional pontificators, existing only in the you know in the in the bubble of social media. And I've you know, I I, I personally never have wanted to do that. Yeah. So. The New York Times, the Washington Post, Bloomberg, what is the value of the vaunted institution these days? Why don't all the best reporters just strike on, strike out on their own, set up Patreon channels? <laughs> like, why doesn't that happen? Uh, well, you know, these are powerful platforms with, with, uh, with global reach. They can pay you, which is important, you know, so there's a guaranteed income. There are health benefits. Um, a place like Bloomberg, you know, we've got a TV channel and resources to do, you know, that 
resources to do multimedia in a Facebook way that has feels all pro- those things well now, in a right? way that feels professional oh. and, <laughs> you know and like not to say that this this of course is very professional operation but um, you know you can tell the difference between you know something that's well produced and has TV but do values. people even want that do they want professionalism or do they want authenticity that's a good question I mean ideally you give them both um, I think professionalism still counts, but you know, if we're staring into the teeth of like the unbundling of the cable networks, and that you know maybe we are going to be veering in the direction of authenticity, especially if you look at Donald Trump as the leading indicator. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, there's a uh, there's a fine line between you know authenticity and and like uh, Wayne and Garth. You know, like it, it has to be. What the, you know, <laughs> what, you, know, you, you know, like what? Uh, like yeah, like a kind of the basement. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think that the the the, you know, the news organizations and I think the the great uh, you know the great sort of sadness right now is that you know the list that you just uh, made of the Times and the Washington Post and Bloomberg and there there are a lot of other professional news organizations, but then the list kind of drops off and we are seeing you know our smaller local news franchises kind of wither and so we're losing a sort of diversity of you know like kind of local news that i think has has informed and grounded people maybe but then i think of like this business like maya business software engineering daily mostly one person business i mean i've done some outsourcing i just hired somebody else full time uh i'm able to produce a lot of content a lot of people listen to it um, I would say it's like I do my best to present a real version of the truth. And I would argue, like, what else can you do? Even if you're the New York Times, you get stuff wrong sometimes. Uh, isn't that like where we're headed, where it's actually like maybe this is a beneficial thing where uh, we get rid of this notion that uh, New York Times is the arbiter of the truth or Washington Post is the arbiter of truth or any Buddy else on this short list, maybe the reason this list is shortening is because people are fed up with the idea that there is a source of truth. Instead, you just have as many opinions as you can fit into your treadmill day, and that asymptotes towards your sense of reality. Is that such a bad thing? I don't know. This is a different discussion. What you describe as kind of exhausted feels exhausting to me because the truth is the truth. And it's not, you know. And, and the truth cannot be like endlessly litigated and facts can't be endlessly litigated. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now with, I think, the presidential administration. And sometimes you do want, you know, you, you want a mainstream media, I think, to, to, uh, um, if everything is up for this, for, uh, for debate. Even, even like a common set of facts that we're, we're sort of heaven, heading to a world of like endless, um, you know, division between our, political parties and the extreme political extremes and we're just gonna like it's gonna this country will get more divided um i you know i i worry about where that ends what do you think of instacart instacart um i you know they recently raised money and um billion dollar valuation yeah and uh you know and my my girlfriend uses it um you know, in, in some ways, it is like the perfect Amazon uh, hack. It's like the perfect anti-Amazon um, strategy for for supermarkets. You know that you know you can um, you know serve serve customers without building your own delivery mechanism. Um, you know, Amazon still hasn't figured out grocery stores. In fact, you could almost say Amazon Fresh has, is a little bit of a failure. Uh, and now they're starting physical uh, physical physical grocery stores. And so, you know, if you're a Costco or a Whole Foods, you know, you worry that one day Amazon will get it right. So I think, you know, we haven't seen very many of these independent, um, you know, operators syndicate physical retail uh, to go and present like like a company called ShopRunner uh, tried it a couple of years ago and kind of, you know, with their own Amazon Prime. Enjoy is kind of doing it. Yeah, I don't know much about them. But you know, it feels like Instacart has been successful in some yeah. uh, markets. You know, they've got a kind of labor thing to figure out with contractors versus employees. Um, but they do deliver a great service. And that, of course, in e-commerce is the main thing that matters. Agreed. Well, Brad, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been great to talk to you. I've really enjoyed your books and look forward to your continued journalism. Thank you, Jeff. Wow. 